0: is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hart, and I'm here with Adam Drapshow. Hello. Judy Curry has a broad range of experience with journalism in New Hampshire. She has covered all kinds of topics for all kinds of outlets, including newspapers, radio, and television. She currently works as a staff writer for Business New Hampshire Magazine. Thank you for joining us, Judy. Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: Judy, could you start us off by explaining how and why you got into journalism?
2: Oh, well, I um, go back to the days of when Answering Machines first came out, and I worked in retail. And if the cash register broke, I used to have to leave a message on the voicemail machine. And the gentleman who would come in in the morning told me what a wonderful voice I had and how I ought to go into radio. So fast forward about 10 years and I did. I, I was working in manufacturing as you know a quality control technician and I said, oh, this is terrible. And, and so I tossed that all aside and went to Connecticut School of Broadcasting. And from there, I've been to Maine and all over New Hampshire and then eventually to public TV and then into print.
1: Well, it's the first time I've heard that answer to that question. As I looked at your LinkedIn page, it occurred to me that you're likely someone who thinks not just about what a journalist delivers, but how that information is being delivered. Could you tell us more about that? Do you think more journalists should be thinking about how their work is being presented?
2: Yeah, I often see things on the national news and I feel like, did they realize what they were going to sound like? No. (laughs) Locally, we have such good quality journalism. And, you know, anytime I have an opportunity to share and talk about it, I, I always urge people to consider the impact. You know, I think in social media, we see the impact of how fast information can travel. So if you're a journalist, you really have to have a whole nother layer of responsibility and appreciation for where that information can go and what it can do, good or bad.
1: How would you advise working journalists today? What would you advise them to do to improve that in their own work?
2: Well, I've always had this three-pronged approach to news. I think there's three things. There's the information people want to know need to know and should know. And what they wanna know is the exciting stuff, the crime stories that don't necessarily impact their life. You know, what they need to know is the real critical stuff, like if city hall's being closed or if a bridge is being shut down for a year for construction. But what they ought to know is all that stuff that they tend to not pay attention to, like municipal government, what's on the town warrant, People get so excited, I've voted in every presidential election, and I said, yeah, but did you vote in the local ones? Those are the people that are impacting your life. So as journalists, that's where we really need to make sure we're giving equal value to that information and trying to engage people with it.
1: You've had a chance to see journalism as a changing and evolving industry over the course of your career. Do you have a sense of where it's heading?
2: I think it's a little bit like the way radio went. When radio stations could all be consolidated under a single owner and not have to be spread out because they were worried about them having too much power, someone said eventually they'll go back and they'll become local again. And that has started to happen where you see single licensees or, you know, I think you have one right in the lakes region. So I feel like journalism has that opportunity now. We've got former state senator Chuck Douglas with a newspaper. There's another small newspaper. There's actually, I think, a couple in the southern part of the state below Manchester. I think you've got Londonderry and New Boston. So I think we'll see it kind of coming back in just in smaller ways.
1: And why do you think that's happening? What what, is sort of the, what are the market conditions that are allowing for that to happen?
2: The easy access to the information online, I think people are recognizing even if somebody is gonna charge them a small fee, they might be willing to pay for a local newspaper that's online that they can access. As far as larger papers, they're heading toward this online world where the only printable paper, it, people expect it to be the Sunday paper. But I could almost see that in a smaller model, too, where you just do like little leaflets. It's almost like we've gone back to colonial times in a way. <laughs> but I think portability of the information and what people are looking for, if you can provide that niche and do it in, in a way that people can feel is done with integrity and honesty, I think you'll find success there.
1: I'd like to ask you about a couple of stories you published recently. The first one had to do with Stewart's Ambulance, a company that is local to us at the Laconia Daily Sun, and which is important to our readership because Stewart's provides ambulance service for a lot of smaller towns that don't have their own municipal ambulance. Could you tell us about that story? How'd you get into it and and what'd you learn?
2: Well, they reached out because I was, you know, writing for a business magazine. This was a great business story. This is the first New Hampshire ambulance service to, and the first in New England, actually, to become an ESOP. And, you know, that's an employee, employee stock ownership plan is what those letters stand for. But basically, instead of being a corporation with shareholders, the employees are the owners of the company, Admix, Revision Energy, and Hypertherm are some earlier examples. But no one had ever done this in the ambulance service except in other parts of the country. And so the real key to this is that the people who work in this profession are not making a lot of money. They don't see it as a good career move. So when I interviewed the executive chairman, Justin Van Etten, one of the things that he pointed out is that the career path for EMTs, you start at the very basic level of a person who can drive wheelchair vans, you move up Through the various levels, you get a four-year degree, you become a paramedic, and maybe you get advanced degrees and certifications, and pretty soon you're going to get snapped up by a hospital or other healthcare organization that can pay more. So nobody was finishing their career in here, and people weren't staying, and the turnover was really high.
1: So do you think that this represents a a possible solution then? And if so, could you tell us how it will work?
2: So the way this works is if people stay with the company, I believe it's five years, four or five years, they can become fully vested as a shareholder and an owner. And then if they make a career out of it, they're getting a percentage of the money that's coming in, as opposed to it just going to wherever it would go in a business model. Because the ones that are trying to do EMS as a business are not really doing that well anyway. It's mainly the nonprofits. But if you can take what little profit there is in this model and give it to the people that work there, that will give them an incentive to stay and maybe make a career out of it because the longer you're there, the larger share you'll have in the company.
1: I'm curious if you have a sense as I don't know if you would have gotten there in your interview, but what's the motivation for the current owners to give up ownership and open the door for the employees to take over?
2: What you have in this industry is kind of a low pay structure and a low reimbursement structure from places like Medicare and Medicaid. And that's due to the fact that a lot of these companies for years were volunteers, but nobody can volunteer 40 hours a week. So by doing this, It's worth it to maintain the success of the company. And they all, you know, the current owners, they all become partners in this venture.
1: So if you see this as a solution, I wonder if you've had any thoughts about this sort of model being applied to other industries where there has been similar issues of low compensation leading to um, high turnover.
2: Well, I mean, that could certainly happen in other parts of healthcare, I suppose, if you don't already have a nonprofit structure in place. It would be interesting to know whether any of the privately held hospitals are actually offering any sort of stock options to keep the people higher up in the system. But definitely for this, for a company that, you know, has seen, or or an industry rather, that's seen so much turnover, I think it's a great option.
1: Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out if they succeed and if other smaller companies, also in the same business, follow suit. The other story I wanted to ask was about broadband access in some of the rural parts of the state. Could you tell us how you got into this story and, uh, and how you went about investigating it?
2: The uh, Business NH Magazine focuses on telecom and technology, specifically every December, I believe. <laughs> so I actually wrote about it in 2020 when one of the first big projects was Chesterfield. They were trying to bring in broadband and they were sort of part of a coalition that was pushing for the state to create a rule that would allow broadband to be treated like other utilities. So think about it. If there was a town without electricity, they would do something about it. You could go to the voters and you could say, hey, we built all these new houses. We need electricity and we need water. We need sewer. And the town could bond for that. But They couldn't bond for broadband. And so they had to change that rule to allow them to do that. And then this story, when it came out, it was January of 2020, and it didn't take too much longer beyond the timing of that story. For people to realize that the communities that didn't have broadband were in big trouble because when all the kids were sent home from school, you had a lot of students that were totally disenfranchised, disconnected. You had teachers teaching from parking lots of Dunkin' Donuts, you know, because they didn't have broadband. You don't, you know, if you live in the southern part of the state, like I do, where, you know, you're in a city, you never think twice about it. But when you find out that all these cute little tourist shops in, say, Newport, when they're trying to run credit cards, they're like doing it on like a modem So it's like, wow, just bring out that little swiper one, why don't you? So you don't realize what a huge difference it makes. So for everybody, for work from home, this was a big awakening. So they were already heading down that road of improving it, but COVID certainly pointed out all the inequities and all the breaks in capacity. So if there hadn't been support up till then, it certainly would have happened. And one of the most entertaining stories in this series had to be Bristol, the town of Bristol. The town uh, manager there, a uh, town administrator, Nick Coates, he said his logo is basically beer and broadband. <laughs> so in order to to get people to move to Bristol because the town is just shrinking and they want to bring in young families, they knew they would need broadband and they knew that they would need a brew pub. <laughs> and so that that's their, that's their motto. And it's really, you know, it's really making a difference because the businesses, if they can't get that service, who's going to want to locate even a small business there, you know?
1: Is it really that dire? I think is this, is broadband access that critical to the survival of these smaller towns?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it it is because that the one thing they're lacking because of the way our housing market has evolved and the lack of multifamily and so on. I think we all know the housing crisis and where that sort of got driven to building a lot of elderly housing and nothing else because they were worried about the school impact taxes. And now it's kind of gone the other way where they're, they're getting so small, they're actually losing money in terms of their allocation. So I think this is another way to make it attractive to young people, especially with so many either working in the gig economy or working from home. I mean, you can't be an Uber driver if someone can't reach you. And these are areas that were also not necessarily served by great phone service either.
1: Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I town that I live in, we moved in in 2008. And at that time, we didn't really have any access to high-speed internet. It was really just through uh, dial-up was our only option. And just this past, uh, well, less than a month ago, we got one gig fiber installed, which was pretty surprising. I understand that you recently completed a citizen journalism course through the Loeb School. And I was wondering if you would tell us a bit about that.
2: Oh, sure. It's one of their free courses that they offer, and it was four weeks, and it was done over Zoom, thankfully, because it was pretty stormy <laughs> one of those nights. But it, it was wonderful. It was an assortment of people. Some are already working in journalism in some capacity, either as freelancers or maybe for the Granite State News Collaborative. And it was actually sponsored through a grant, and it was so fun to get to kind of go down and talk about all of these different things. We covered the basics of kind of the the ethics and what differentiates news from other writing. And then we actually got into some writing exercises and taking a look at information and press releases. And we talked a lot about working with municipal government because really one of the goals of the school is to encourage citizen journalism where people are paying attention. And I think I, I kind of summed it up at the end with telling them that I hope that they will get engaged and get involved in it because a democracy will only survive if you know somebody's paying attention, <laughs> and that's where journalists come in.
1: You know, I wonder if this ties into what we were talking about uh, earlier. There was a previous era in newspapers when the people that were writing for them were often citizen journalists who were not necessarily trained or went to uh, school to become journalists but just had the, happened to be in the meetings and could write and inform their neighbors about it. Do you think that as we're talking about the return of small local newspapers, might we also be talking about the return of citizen journalists?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think there are kind of people out there, even if they don't have a formal paper, they may be trying to act in that role. And over the years that I worked at Foster's Daily Democrat, they had many people who would just submit columns for their town. If you ever looked at the Concord Monitor and then Foster's Daily Democrat and the Portsmouth Herald, when you got to the middle to like Northwood, Nottingham, it was like a news desert 20 years ago. <laughs> and the only reason anybody ever came to Nottingham was because of the USA Springs battle. And up until then, they got no coverage. So people in those cities, and it could be your librarian, it could just be some concerned citizen, were already sending in weekly columns or monthly columns just to let people know what
1: was going on. Could you tell me, do you think that any of the people at this school might sign up to do that?
2: Oh, I hope so. And in fact, Melanie Blenda, who is the executive director of the Granite State News Collaborative, told them all that they were welcome to reach out and they would be given an opportunity to get an assignment and see how they do.
1: Oh, great. Well, I hope this turns into a, a regular thing. We, can need to, we need to seed the future with more uh, community journalists. Speaking of the future, I understand that you are working for with the AP and already starting to organize for the next round of presidential elections. Could you tell me how that landscape looks to you right now?
2: Yeah, it's kind of like throwing a dart right now, right? I think we pretty much know where it's going to land, right before everyone else or when the Republicans have set their date. Or, you know, I I think there's very little chance that New Hampshire is going to buckle under and move it, move the Democratic primary. But from an Associated Press perspective, what I do is I recruit a lot of college students and journalists and retired journalists even budding journalists that want to just get out there and help provide that information. And they're not reporting. All they're doing is going out and getting the results at the various towns and cities and wards in different cities. But it's kind of fun. I have people that have been doing it for several years now. They just go out, they cover their one pole, and then they go home and they put their feet up. Some of them, if they're in unlucky enough to be in one of those towns with a lot of people like Derry, they might be out all night. But, <laughs> but you know, they enjoy the, the opportunity to do that and just have that little piece in, in the pie because it takes a lot of people. I'm doing most of New England now, so I'm always looking for, you know, people that want to just do that either as something fun to do or if they're already out there for their paper or radio station, that's also an option too.
0: Um, Judy, I do have one final question for you. If someone was interested in starting their career in journalism now in New Hampshire, what advice would you give them? I would say take a look at
2: what's being done already. We have some great papers in the state you may be familiar with new hampshire bulletin they went and stole some of the best journalists in the state (laughs) from other papers so kind of look around and see see who's doing the really in-depth pieces and and but a lot of your local papers even though they've really struggled to hold on to people they're still doing great work you know so follow that and and go to the meetings yourself and and learn the process of it because that is the most important side of news anybody can run and take a picture at a car accident but This is the really important stuff. And if you learn that, you're going to learn so much about the news business just by kind of following uh, local politics.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Judy.
2: All right. Thank you. It was fun to be here.
0: The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlon Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.